Cosmic chemistry. Do science and God mix? But there's a related question. Do science and atheism mix? Now, each of these questions has several answers. Do science and God mix? Yes and no. No in the sense that, for example, science and God deal with very different kinds of questions. After all, science, the natural sciences, are a set of intellectual disciplines to study nature. God is the creator of nature, so they belong to different categories. And in that sense, you will rapidly discover that you do not teach science from the book of Leviticus. I've never done that. <laughs> and nor do you teach theology from abstract algebra. I've never done that either. But it's important to realize that, peace be to the late Stephen Jay Gould, science and theology do not form non-overlapping magisteria that are best kept totally distinct. They are very distinct in that, in general, science will answer the how questions or the why questions of purpose, whereas theology will deal with the why, uh, sorry, why questions of function, whereas theology will deal with the why questions of purpose. The problem with the non-overlapping magisteria is that when you read the small print, which you will do if you're an Irishman of Scottish ancestry, you notice that science deals with reality and theology deals with everything else, like Father Christmas and the Tooth Fairy. Well, that simply won't do. Because if you think of the words that begin the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's talking about the same heavens and earth that's studied by physicists, chemists, and everybody else. So there is a very substantial and important overlap. So science and God will mix, as we shall see, in a very profound sense, in that there's no incompatibility between doing science and believing in God. Science and atheism, of course, mix in the sense that there are many brilliant atheist scientists. But I want to suggest to you they don't mix intellectually when you examine where atheism actually ultimately leads. A long time ago, Socrates proposed a choice. Whether all this which they call the universe is left to the guidance of unreason and chance medley, or on the contrary, as our fathers have declared, ordered and governed by a marvelous intelligence and wisdom. And that's really the basic issue between the two sides of the current God debate. And Alvin Plantinga, who's a distinguished philosopher, has put it this way. The alleged conflict between science and theism is superficial. There is real concord. Whereas the alleged concord between science and atheism is superficial. There is real concord. Conflict. So let's investigate that. First of all, looking at the pioneers of modern science historically, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and Clark Maxwell in particular. And as a mathematician, I love Kepler's statement, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world 
should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. The interesting thing is all these pioneers and many more of modern science were believers in God. And what is often not realized is that not only at that time, but subsequently, many people who won the Nobel Prize are believers in God. For instance, from 1900 to 2000, over 60% of Nobel Prize winners believed in God. I'm only going to introduce one. He's the only Irish Nobel Prize winner for science. <laughs> and he was a Christian. He split the atom with Rutherford, so he's a very distinguished person. And he wrote, one way to learn the mind of the creator is to study his creation. We must pay God the compliment of studying his work of art. And this should apply to all realms of human thought. A refusal to use our intelligence honestly is an act of contempt for him who gave us that intelligence. And if you think of the pioneers of science who believed in God, C.S. Lewis put it exactly rightly when he wrote, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. The biblical concept of a rational creation was what inspired them to study that rational creation. So far from belief in God hindering the rise of science, it was the motor that drove it. And in that sense, I am not remotely ashamed of being a scientist and a Christian because arguably it was Christianity that gave me my subject. And I think this historically confirms what Plantinga said, the alleged conflict between science and theism is superficial. But there is a conflict. If you take, say, Newton and Hawking, who both occupied the Lucasian chair at Cambridge, you will see the conflict very clearly. Isaac Newton wrote, don't doubt the creator because it is inconceivable that accidents alone could be the controller of this universe. Stephen Hawking wrote, God did not create the universe. And the interesting thing is Newton and Hawking had something very important in common. They both studied gravitation. Newton discovered it and Hawking studied it, particularly in connection with black holes. Now, why is there a conflict and what is the conflict? Please notice it is not a conflict between science and religion. It is a conflict between worldviews, atheism and theism, and there are scientists on both sides. And that's a very different thing. And it's important to realize that. The conflict metaphor, as we call it, is still being encouraged by people like Richard Dawkins and so on. And I want to talk about some of the things that add petrol to the fire and flames of this debate. One of them is this. Statements by scientists are not necessarily statements of science. When Stephen Hawking says there is no God, that isn't a statement of science. 
It's a statement of his personal belief. It may be right, it may be wrong, but the point is many people accept it because of his authority as a scientist. But you need to be very careful with that. Richard Feynman is always worth reading, one of the most distinguished Nobel Prize winners of the 20th century. I believe that a scientist looking at problems out of their field is just as dumb as the next guy. <laughs> now, of course, I am a scientist speaking outside my field. So it applies to me, ladies and gentlemen. And I take that very seriously because there are ways of correcting that. We inevitably all speak outside our fields. Richard Dawkins does it all the time. I do it all the time. But the important thing then is to apply the corrective of consulting the experts in those fields so that one does not end up talking nonsense. For instance, just to illustrate this, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, suggests that there's something psychiatrically unbalanced about believing in God. Delusion is a psychiatric term. And when I noticed that, I realized that Dawkins is not a psychiatrist, neither am I, but he's using the science, if you can call it that, of psychology and psychiatry to negate God. I thought, well, the thing to do here is to check with the psychiatrist. Do they accept this? So I went to the top psychiatrist I could find, the president of the Royal College, Andrew Sims, and discovered he disagrees with Dawkins completely. In fact, he says, when it comes to scientific studies in the sense of epidemiology, there are many major studies of the relationship between human well-being and faith in God. And there's positive correlation. And he lists a whole string of things from a, an official review of a huge meta-study saying that people have more sense of well-being, there's less addiction to narcotics, marriages last longer, and it's a huge long list. And then he says this. He said, if the research had gone in the opposite direction, and it had been demonstrated that belief in God was bad for your health, it would have been first page news in every newspaper in the world. But at the moment, it's the best kept secret of, of psychiatry because nobody wants to admit it. Now, Dawkins is claiming to get rid of God on the basis of science, the science of psychiatry. But does he read this stuff? No. I just don't find that particularly impressive, ladies and gentlemen. And the trouble is, it's playing on the old Freudian concept that God is a wish fulfillment. And I get that a lot. In fact, it was one of the things that determined partially the course of my life at Cambridge when I was asked as a 19-year-old if I believed in God by a student. And then he said, oh, sorry, he said, oh, dear. He said, I forgot you're Irish. And all you Irish believe in God and you fight about it. <laughs> well, of course, I'd heard that many times. But you see, what that did for me was to really think again. Here I was at Cambridge. I could meet people from all different worldviews. And I decided that day, right, let's try and put to bed this idea that my faith in God, that my parents believed, my grandparents believed, 
is a product of Irish DNA and genetics, and that's it. You see, it's an old Freudian thing. So I decided on that day to befriend somebody that didn't share my worldview. And two years later, he became a Christian. And I then realized that it's possible for people to change their worldview. Now, that was enormously important. But you know this Freudian thing, you can have a lot of fun with it. Because uh, Stephen Hawking made the statement, religion is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. That's the Freudian explanation. And the newspaper that printed this was kind enough to invite me to respond, so I did. And I said, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light. Well, it's nice to hear you clap, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, that shows me you don't quite understand the argument. Because, you see, the Freudian argument works both ways. And to treat it seriously now for a minute, one of Germany's most brilliant psychiatrists is Manfred Lutz. And he's written a book called Eine kleine Geschichte des Größten. That is a brief history of the great one, that is God. And he says, if there is no God, then of course Freud gives you a brilliant argument explaining religion as wish fulfillment, if there is no God. But of course, if there is a God, the very same argument shows you that atheism is a wish fulfillment. The desire never to have to meet God to deal with questions of immorality, sin, judgment, all that kind of stuff. But on the substantive question, whether there's a God or not, Freud can't help you at all. Now, that's very important. It's a double-edged sword. So we got to go somewhere else. Where have we to go? Not with this kind of argument, but to the question of evidence. And I want to suggest that Newton's theism, from that to Hawking's atheism, depends on three essential things. First of all, confusion about faith. Secondly, failure to recognize that science has limits. And thirdly, confusion about the nature of explanation. So the first thing to realize is that the new atheists define faith as blind faith. And that leads to sheer nonsense. Just listen to this. Atheists have no faith, says Richard Dawkins, and then writes a book about what he believes. It is astonishing. Atheism is not a faith, said Richard uh, Peter Singer. And that was funny because I debated him in Australia and I told the audience that my parents were Christian. And when he came to speak, he said, well, there it is. That's what religion does. People stay in the faith in which they were brought up. And I thought this is going to be very interesting. So when I had a chance to speak, I said, Peter, I told them about my parents. Would you like to tell them about yours? For instance, were your parents atheists? He said, yes, they were. Oh, I said, so you've stayed in the faith in which you were brought up. <laughs> oh, but he said, it isn't a faith. And I said, I'm sorry, Peter, I was under the impression you believed it. That is very revealing. Here was one of the world's leading philosophers 
that didn't realize that his atheism is a belief system. The flip side of it, atheism is not just not believing in God. It is a whole positive system of beliefs called naturalism or materialism. That's why Dawkins' book is not one page long, but three or four hundred. And it amazes me that this idea has got so deeply ingrained that I as a Christian, I'm a person of faith, which means I am an idiot because I believe where there's no evidence. Scientists aren't people of faith, they believe in reason. Well, we come to that in a moment because this is yet another very seriously false idea. Listen to Dawkins, a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Faith being belief that isn't based on evidence is the principal vice of any religion. Well, he might as well not write his book then, because his whole book is a description of his faith in naturalism. And if it's a vice, well, then he better forget it, shouldn't he? You see, what has happened is very clever. If you look up the Oxford English Dictionary on faith, you'll find it's belief, trust, that which produces belief, evidence, token, pledge, engagement, trust in its objective aspect, observance of trust, fidelity, confidence, reliance, and belief proceeding from reliance on testimony or authority. And we all know that. We all expect to have reasons why we believe propositions and why we trust people. If you don't believe that, go and try and get a loan of a million rand from your bank manager. And just see whether he wants any evidence for trusting you or not. And you will discover he needs an awful lot before he'll trust you with the money. We're all familiar with the currency of evidence-based trust. We have reasons for trusting people. We have reasons for trusting alleged facts, and so on or so forth. But the trouble is the word faith has multiple meanings. It can be a shorthand for a religion, the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, the Muslim faith, and so on. Or it can be my subjective response to something. I believe, I have faith, I trust. And those get confused. And in addition, you get this pressure coming from Dawkins and co. that says, you use the word faith, it means believing where there's no evidence. Well, that's false. Blind faith is believing where there is no evidence. And what that screams out, and this is the most serious thing of all, is that science essentially involves faith commitments of the deepest order as does every other aspect in life. We cannot proceed in society without trust. That's why we have so many lawyers, isn't it? <laughs> trust is hugely important. Faith and evidence-based faith. But faith in science, you see, Albert Einstein got it. And he says that science can only be created by those who are thoroughly imbued with the aspiration towards truth and understanding. That is, most scientists like me are critical realists. They believe there's truth out there. They believe that get, they can get near to it, but they're usually not so arrogant as to say they've understood it all. Now look what Einstein says. 
This source of feeling, however, springs from the sphere of religion. To this, there also belongs the faith in the possibility that the regulations valid for the world of existence are rational. That is comprehensible to reason. I cannot conceive of a genuine scientist without that profound faith. In order to do any kind of science, you must believe, to start with, that it can be done. You must believe that the universe is rationally intelligible, indeed mathematically intelligible. And science is powerless to prove that to you because you've got to assume it before you start. So scientists are believers, not necessarily in God, but they have faith. And once we grasp that, that changes the whole paradigm of the debate. Because we, ladies and gentlemen, are all people of faith. Every one of us in this room has a set of beliefs, a worldview, that may be only partially thought out for those of us that are younger, and that's right so. Students have a great opportunity to investigate. And for those of us who are older, we do have ways of answering the big questions. We are all people of faith. The question is, in what? In what? What is it that forms the basis of our faith? Now, it's very important in any discussion of science and God, but in particular Christianity, that we realize, when well, we all do, that science is, at least claims to be, evidence-based, but Christianity is an evidence-based belief system. That is utterly clear from many places in the Bible, but in particular this one. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here is the evidence on which faith can be based. If Christianity were not evidence-based, you wouldn't have the New Testament because it claims to be evidence. It's as simple as that. So this is enormously important. But let's take another thing that makes life difficult in this debate, and that is scientism. Unlimited faith in science. Bertrand Russell once wrote, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods, and what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. Now, he was a bright mathematician and logician, but his logic failed him when he wrote that sentence. As is obvious, because that sentence is not a statement of science. But whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. So if that statement is true, it is completely false. Have you got it? Oh, it's too early in the morning for logic. <laughs> but anyway, we'll have to move on then. Scientism is dangerous overreach. And Peter Medawar, another Nobel Prize winner, puts it very well. He says, the existence of a limit to science is, however, made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions having to do with first and last things. Questions such as, how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? Why, why, why? I said earlier, science tends to deal with the how questions or the why of function. It doesn't deal with this kind of question, as is completely obvious. 
And in today's times, there is an announcement of a new book on atheism by an atheist who is very critical of Dawkins and co. I'm looking forward to reading it. It comes out on Thursday. And he says it's totally obvious that the gap between science and religion will never be closed because science cannot answer questions of meaning. That's an honest bit of atheism. His name is John Gray. And his new book is called Seven Different Types of Atheism. So let's come now to those questions of Peter Medawar, but Stephen Hawking took them up in his last book, The Grand Design. And he says of them, traditionally these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Notice the last statement is pure scientism. The only truth, the only knowledge we're going to get is coming through science. And it chimes with Russell's point. But look at this statement. Philosophy is dead. Well, that upset the Cambridge Department of Philosophy. <laughs> but it also amused everybody who thought about it. Because this comes at the beginning of the book, and what's the topic of Hawking's book? The philosophy of science. <laughs> it is not the wisest thing to say philosophy is dead before you embark on a book about the philosophy of science. But I'm afraid the book proves that philosophy is very dead as far as Hawking was concerned. And interestingly enough, Stephen Hawking was of course a genius, and we mourn his passing. But it was very interesting that in his obituary, Sir Martin Rees, the astronomer royal who worked with Hawking and regarded him extremely highly, was honest enough to say in the obituary that Hawking ventured into philosophy and we shouldn't listen to anything he said because he had basically no idea of it whatsoever. And that was a, that was a very honest statement. But the trouble is, you see, when that kind of statement is made by someone of the ability of Hawking, people take it. Now, let's go to the question that I raised earlier. How do we get from Newton's theism to Hawking's atheism? Three things, false logic, false ideas about God, and false ideas about explanation. Here's the heart of Hawking's argument, the main statement in the book. Because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And when I read that first, I thought, pardon? Because there is a law of gravity, because there is something, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Flat contradiction number one. Because there is a law of gravity, not because gravity exists, but this is opening into a huge can of confused worms that <laughs> is that laws can create. Well, that's what caused the financial crisis, you know. There were a lot of clever people who thought that mathematics could create money. I suppose you could call it creative accounting. Um, <laughs> and it is deep in people's psyches, the idea that mathematics can create things. I once had a little spat, I suppose you could call it, with Peter Atkins, the great physical chemist who's written all the books in your university libraries and that you use. 
And I said, Peter, tell me, what do you think created the universe? And without hesitation, he surprised me by saying mathematics. And I'm afraid I was so taken aback, I laughed. <laughs> and um, he was not very pleased. And he said, um, why are you laughing? Well, I said, Peter, I'm really sorry. I am a mathematician, and that is about the silliest thing I've heard for a very long time. He said, why? Well, I said, let me put it to you simply. One plus one equals two. Did that ever put two pounds in your pocket? <laughs> and C.S. Lewis saw this long ago, that doing arithmetic doesn't produce anything except arithmetic. If you want to get one pound and one pound to produce two pounds, you first of all have to get the one pound and the one pound. Arithmetic will not do it for you, even if you do it, as Lewis says, from now to all eternity. And similarly, for other laws, Newton's laws of motion never moved a billiard ball in the history of the universe. People with cues do that, as you might have seen. The laws describe the motion, and that is so important. But then there are more things. The universe can create itself. Well, if I say that X creates Y, roughly speaking, you say if you've got X, you'll get Y somehow. And if I say X creates X, if you've got X, you'll get X. Which seems to me to mean that nonsense remains nonsense even if scientists write it. It is pure nonsense. A universe creating itself. And from nothing. Well, that really is the most interesting thing of all. I love giving lectures on nothing. There's something, you know, very attractive about nothing these days. Because the current wisdom is the universe comes from nothing. So we've now got into the situation where the alternatives are God or nothing. That's very interesting state of affairs. And you've got to choose between them. Which makes more sense? God or nothing? You see, the biblical view is that the universe is not made from anything physical. But it is created and upheld by a God who is spirit. God is not nothing, but he's not physical. And so you have this choice between the two. And one of my colleagues at Oxford, Professor Keith Ward, says a biblical theism is true. Not only is matter not the only reality, matter is not even the prime reality. There is at least one mind that is prior to all matter, that is not in time, and therefore is not capable of being brought into being by anything. It is the one truly self-existent reality and the cause of all physical things. Now, I haven't time, I've written a little book on God and Stephen Hawking, but I haven't time to give you a proper lecture on nothing, except to run this past you to see what you think of it as a logical statement and it's by another astrophysicist who's written a book called The Universe from Nothing. Surely nothing is every bit as physical as something, especially if it is to be defined as the absence of something. What? <laughs> it concerns me, ladies and gentlemen, because if this is the level, if a 13-year-old wrote that, you'd think they were pretty clever, but clever at writing nonsense. But this is one of the world's apparently leading astrophysicists. The one thing they have not succeeded in doing is getting something from nothing. And that's a long story, but we'll leave it at that.
The logic of Hawking's statement is flawed at at least three different levels. Well, let's come to the second thing. I used to wonder why he, in particular, would say to the general public, you must choose between God and science. I was asked to make that choice as a 19-year-old in Cambridge when I encountered a Nobel Prize winner at my dinner table. And I tried to talk to him a little bit, and he took me up to his room and there were some other professors, no students, and he said, Lennox, if you want to make a career in science, you've got to make a decision right here in front of witnesses. Give up these crazy ideas of God. They will cripple you. They will mean you will never make it. Talk about pressure. You know, if he'd been a Christian and I'd been an atheist and he'd tried that pressure technique, he'd have lost his job the next day. But because he was pushing atheism, it was okay, apparently. It was another turning point in my life because I resolved if I ever got an academic position and was able to address audiences such as yourselves, I wouldn't resort to that kind of argumentation but present evidence so that people could choose without being pressured and make up their own minds and put a bit of steel in my heart that has remained there. But why did Hawking say, and this Nobel Prize winner, why say choose between God and science? I couldn't understand it. And then I realized that they're not talking about the God of the Bible. And that explains it all. What they're talking about is a kind of ancient Greek God of the gaps. I can't explain it, therefore God did it. I can't explain lightning, therefore there's a God of lightning and so on. And a bit of science, that God disappears, and rightly so. But you see, the God of the Bible is not one of the gods of the ancient Near East. He's not a god of the gaps. I hope you've noticed that the first sentence in the Bible is not, in the beginning, God created the bits of the universe we don't yet understand. No, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the whole show, the bits we do understand and the bits we do not understand. Now, here's the logic of this, and try and follow this, because it's actually very important. If you define God to be the explanation of what science has not yet explained, then of course you have to choose between God and science as a matter of logic and definition. But the God of the Bible is the God of the whole show. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things came to be through the word. The bits we do understand and the bits we don't. And usually it's the bits we do understand that increase our admiration for someone who made them. When Newton discovered gravitation and his laws of optics and all the rest of it, he didn't say, now I've got a law, I don't need God. No, he said, what a brilliant God who did it that way. So that's a false idea of God and it's very persistent among the so-called new atheists. But then there's false ideas about the nature of explanation. The law of gravity, believe it or not, doesn't explain gravity. Richard Feynman, whom I mentioned earlier, said nobody knows what it is. Until today, we can use the law of gravitation to do brilliant calculations, but we don't exactly know what it is. And the philosopher Wittgenstein 
got it exactly right when he said, the great delusion of modernity is that the laws of nature explain the universe for us. The laws of nature describe the universe, but they explain nothing. Newton realized, it's fascinating that all that time ago, he realized that the law of gravity did not explain gravity. He said, non fingo hypothesi. That's his famous statement. I do not feign hypotheses. In other words, I'm not claiming to explain what this is. I'm giving you a mathematical way of calculating its effects, but I'm not claiming what it is. But you can see that very simply by thinking of a question, why is the water boiling? Well, because heat from a Bunsen burner is being conducted through a kettle base and is agitating the molecules of water. That's why it's boiling. Okay. But it's actually boiling because I'd love a cup of tea. <laughs> and you're laughing. Well, there are various reasons for laughter. But I think possibly some of you who are thinking about this are laughing because you realize that those are two different kinds of explanation of the same thing. Yes? One's in terms of scientific law, mechanism, heat transfer. The other is in terms of personal agency, volition, desire, and all the rest of it. They don't compete. They don't conflict. Those explanations complement. And what amazes me is in spite of the simplicity of this that any child can understand but sir, they say to me, you need both. Exactly. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the personal explanation is usually the more important one. People have been enjoying tea for thousands of years before they knew anything about heat transfer. Yes. Why can people not see that at the deeper level? At the level of the universe. Let me put it this way. Newton's law of gravitation no more competes with God as an explanation of the universe then the law of internal combustion competes with Henry Ford as an explanation of the motor car. Do you get that? Different kinds of explanation. And that is a profound mistake of the new atheists, which John Gray points up in his new book. They have made a god of science, a religion of science, he said. And they've got this false idea that God is an alternative explanation that competes with science, which is sheer nonsense. Just like you would never say, well, I think Henry Ford is the better explanation. Well, that's nonsense. You need both. And I think that takes an awful lot of the heat out of this. But you see, there are people who insist that the scientific explanation of any phenomenon is the only valid one. Now, I have more to say about explanation. Because there is another myth that explanation always goes from the simple to the complex. You split water up into hydrogen and oxygen and so on. And often that kind of reductionist explanation works very well, particularly in some of the natural sciences. And some argue that it always goes that way. Dawkins is one of them. And here's his big objection to God in the God delusion. Using God as an explanation is absurd. Since God is by definition more complex than the thing you're explaining. That sounds terrific, doesn't it? Until you apply it to his own book. 
Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, is quite complex. It's got about 400 pages. So I asked around to see if I could find out the origin of this book. And you know, somebody suggested that it originated in the infinitely more complex mind of Richard Dawkins. So I said that is utterly impossible by his own argument. Because your explanation of his book is more complicated than the book. So it isn't an explanation. Well, what do you think of that? Nonsense. And why is it nonsense? If you think about this carefully, you realize that the thing that makes the difference is that there is language involved. The one area, there are others, but the main area where we never reduce language to physics and chemistry because it simply cannot be done. The meaning of the message, as the Nobel Prize winner Sperry said, is not in the ink and paper on which the message is printed. And there is a deeper reason for that, which we may come to in a moment. But the difficulty is, if you believe that everything is reduced to physics and chemistry, that the painting by Picasso is nothing but molecules of paint and canvas mixed together, that reduces all meaning to nothing, as Francis Crick saw. Because that kind of ontological reductionism, everything is reduced to physics and chemistry, leads to psychological reductionism. You, your joys, your sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Sounds wonderful, except that he weakens it to the point of non-recognition halfway through the book if you read it. And he says your identity, free will, are in fact no more, uh, are almost uh, the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells. And that's a very different matter. Dennis Noble is a man I know very well. He's the father of systems biology, fellow of the Royal Society. And he says, suppose we really succeeded in reducing rational behavior to molecular and cellular causation. In that case, we would no longer be able meaningfully to express the truth of what we had succeeded in doing. In any event, the question doesn't arise. No such reduction is conceivable. Now, this is very important because the materialistic interpretation of reality is it goes back to nothing, the quantum vacuum or mass energy, and that everything is explicable, including mind. So let's conclude by thinking for a moment about the mind. And I often ask scientists what they do science with. And of course they tell me they do it with their brain because many of them don't believe in the mind. I believe in the mind, but that's another story. And uh, I ask them, just for fun of course, I said, tell me the brief history of the mind or the brain that you do science with. And they say, well of course the um, Brain is the end product of a mindless, unguided process. <laughs> so I smile and look at them and I say, and you trust it. And you trust it. Tell me, honestly. If you knew your computer was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? 
And I always forced them to answer that question. And I never had the answer, yes. Not once. And I say, doesn't that present a problem for you? Here you are trusting something. And sometimes they will ask me um, where I got the argument. And I said, you'd be surprised. Got it from Charles Darwin. With me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. You can see the arguments, exactly the same argument, and Alvin Plantinga has updated it. If Dawkins is right, that we are the product of mindless, unguided natural processes, then he's given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties, and therefore inevitably to doubt the validity of any belief that they produce, including Dawkins' own atheism. That isn't shooting yourself in the foot, ladies and gentlemen. That's painful. It's shooting yourself in the brain, and that's usually fatal. <laughs> now, Plantinga is a Christian philosopher. Thomas Nagel is an atheist philosopher, a strong atheist. He doesn't want there to be a God, and he's put that in writing. He's also written a book with the most provocative subtitle I've ever seen. Why the Neo-Darwinian View of the World is Almost Certainly False. Now, this is an atheist writing. His reason is you can't reduce the mental to the physical. And he sees the problem. If the mental is not itself merely physical, it cannot be fully explained by physical science. Evolutionary naturalism implies that we shouldn't take any of our convictions seriously, including the scientific world picture on which evolutionary naturalism itself depends. Now, this argument, which was seen by C.S. Lewis a long time ago, he made the statement of the obvious, brilliantly as he always does. No theory that undermines the rationality of the human mind can be true because you reach it by thinking. And if you undermine the validity of thinking, you can't create anything. Now this linguistic thing is a very interesting thing. Noam Chomsky, the famous expert on language, was talking about language because Darwin thought that language was a brilliant illustration of his theories. Listen to Chomsky. It is perfectly safe to attribute the development of innate language structures to natural selection, so long as we realize that there's no substance to this assertion, that it amounts to nothing more than a belief that there's some naturalistic explanation for these phenomena. Now, language is fascinating. This is a linguist, Simpson, at the present time, no languages are primitive in the sense of being significantly close to the origin of language. And David Premack, who's very well known, says, human language is an embarrassment for evolutionary theory because it's vastly more powerful than one can account for by selective fitness. And he imagines, he said, Try to arrange any ordinary sentence consisting of 10 words. A rearrange. Now that sentence consists of 10 words. There are 3,628,800 ways of doing this. 
But for the above sentence, only one of them is grammatical. How did we learn this, he asks. The only way is by possessing some recipe so comprehensive that it automatically rules out the 3,628,799 wrong ways. Such a recipe must apply to all sentences and so will rule out more ungrammatical sentences than there are atoms in the cosmos. Language presents an enormous barrier in the way of any movement from simple to complex, from atoms to mind, that doesn't itself involve a mind. And that, of course, is the materialist view. But, of course, the, the crowning thing is that we live in the information age, and we realize that information is not material. So, Mass energy cannot be an explanation for immaterial information. Why is that important? Well, it's important because we've discovered information in the material of the cells of our bodies. The longest word we've ever discovered. The human genetic code, three and a half billion letters. And that brings us finally to the ancient creation story. And the book of Genesis tells us about a created universe. And we notice as we read that God didn't create everything at once. There is a sequence that has a beginning and an end. And the goal of that sequence are human beings like you and me, uniquely dignified by being made in the image of God. Now, the heavens declared the glory of God, but they weren't made in his image. You were. Which gives you a unique and immeasurable value. One of the ways I compare worldviews is to see how they value human beings. And a worldview that tells me that human beings are basically evolved slime that has no meaning or purpose, and a worldview that tells me that I'm created in the image of God, they're very different. And it's very interesting, Genesis, with its simple but profound description of a sequence with a goal, that's teleology. To put it in scientific language, the universe is fine-tuned by the creator to have Creatures made in his image on it. Here's Arno Penzias, won the Nobel Prize. And he wrote this, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe made out of nothing, with the precise fine-tuning which is necessary for life, and which has, one might say, an underlying supernatural plan. So what we've got, ladies and gentlemen, is a universe that is a sequence of speech acts, and God said, and God said, and God said. That is an informational input into an open system from a mind that's outside that system. That's the exact opposite of a mindless, unguided process. And you see, that begins to give plausibility, I think, 
In the beginning was the word. It's a word-based universe. But it goes on, you see. The next huge step is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, that instantly raises the question of the supernatural. I read to you earlier that in John's gospel, he says Jesus did these signs and they're all supernatural acts. How can we possibly believe in that sort of stuff in an age of science? And many of my scientific colleagues have believed this statement by David Hume and that turns them completely off this whole topic. And they say a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature and as a firm and unalterable experience established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can be imagined. Christianity hits that head on. The first fact in the history of Christendom, wrote C.S. Lewis, is a number of people who say they've seen the resurrection. If they had died without making anyone else believe this gospel, no gospels would ever have been written. So what's the answer to Hume? It's very easy. And you can watch Christopher Hitchens and me going at it on our YouTube debate. I've got a website, johnlennox.org, where you can see a lot more of this kind of stuff. It's very easy to answer Hume, you see. Let's go back to it. I'm staying in a hotel here in Cape Town. So on Friday night, I put a hundred rand into my drawer at the side of my bed. Saturday night, I put another hundred. But when I open the drawer this morning, I find 50 rand. Now, what do I conclude? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken or the laws of South Africa? Have you got it? Well, what do I conclude? The laws of South Africa have been broken. How do I know that? Because the laws of arithmetic have not been broken. I don't say, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, 100 plus 100 were 200 yesterday. Apparently, they're 50 today. <laughs> no, I don't. The laws of arithmetic have not been broken. And that's what tells me that the laws of the land have been broken. Because the laws of nature and the laws of a country are different generic kinds of law. And that's where the confusion lies. The resurrection of Jesus Christ breaks no laws. How can that be? Well, if I were claiming that Jesus rose by some natural mechanisms going on in his tomb just before he rose, then it would be breaking the laws of nature. But nobody's claiming that. The New Testament says he was raised. Not simply he rose, but he was raised by the power of God. That is, there was an input of energy and power from outside the system. And that's the important thing. See, my mistake was to think that the drawer in my hotel was a closed system of cause and effect. <laughs> but a thief put their hand in. And the laws of arithmetic didn't rise up and say, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're going to break the laws. Absurd thinking. Exactly the same here. Miracles of the New Testament type are not violations of the laws of nature. You've got to know the laws of nature to recognize them as miracles. 
You see, if you didn't know that dead bodies didn't normally rise, you wouldn't be surprised at a resurrection. And Hume's idea, his other idea, that people at the time of the New Testament were so primitive they could believe in miracles anywhere is sheer nonsense. To take perhaps the most serious one, when Joseph, betrothed to Mary, found that she was pregnant, he knew exactly where babies came from. And so what did he want to do? Divorce her. And it took enormous power because he was a man of high moral integrity. It took an angel to come and tell him, it's okay. This has happened because the Holy Spirit has overshadowed her. It's perfectly holy. There's nothing wrong with it, Joseph. Take her to be your wife. He knew the laws of nature. And it's utterly ridiculous. It's an insult anyway. To think that the people then knew less about the laws of nature than we know today. They did know technically less, but the basic laws, they knew. So that is, to my mind, a complete end of David Hume. Well, our questions. Cosmic chemistry, do science and God mix? Very well indeed, it seems to me. But science and atheism don't mix at that fundamental level. Because atheism logically leads to doubt about the validity of the rational processes needed to do science. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I would encourage you to investigate and make up your own mind.